Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. My name is Goose, and joining me on today's show is Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors. And boy, did we cover some ground today. We talked about all kinds of stuff, everything from land tax changes in New South Wales to the future of real estate to changing trends for property investors. And of course, how to use depreciation to scale your property portfolio and get to where you want to go rather than getting stuck. So if you're interested in maximum your investment, or in fact, just listening to the funniest man in, in real estate tax, then this is probably the episode for you. So without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. And I can't wait to see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me on today's show is Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors, the best quantity surveyors in the entire world. Mike, how are you? Thank you very much. I'm sure there's some great ones in, you know, maybe Afghanistan not as, or not, something. Not as good as MCG. I went out and did a survey. I checked. Did you? Yeah. Good man. Well, yeah. that's a pleasure. How <laughs> no, are it's you? It's great to be back. I'm, I'm, I'm smashing. How about yourself? What's happened in the last hundred episodes? In the last hundred and fifty-two episodes, right. a lot has ha- a lot has a lot has happened, Mike. So, for those of you who have just tuned into the into the uh, podcast recently, Mike was actually on episode number seven, all the way back in twenty nineteen where we talked about unlocking the hidden riches in real estate and making tax fun, which is a great episode. I thought it was really uh, well-received at the time. We're now up to episode 159, so 152 episodes later, you're finally back. I can't believe it's been so long. But, mate, it's been a, it's been a wild ride. The, I mean, what's all the things? COVID's happened since then? Yeah. Like the yeah. whole, all of COVID. It, started, yeah. it came and went since last time you're on the show. We were blissfully, blissfully ignorant about what the next 150-odd episodes uh, <laughs> had in store for us. And uh, congratulations on those two. I've been tuning into quite a few of those. But yeah, it's been, it's been absolutely crazy. And, and one thing that I like to kind of remind people of is that there was a period of time where we actually kind of didn't know what was going to happen. We thought this could be zombie apocalypse. We might have to get a pump-action shotgun. The property market is going to crash, according to all the banks. There was a lot of uncertainty there, and um, and look at us on the other side. I mean, yes, uh, COVID has been a, a dreadful thing for a lot of people, and you know, people died from it, right? But when mm. it comes to to property, it's it's been an unprecedented time. It's it's been amazing for investors that have been in the market. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it was definitely, yeah, definitely when it all kind of kicked off. There was a there was certainly it was certainly it was uncertain for everyone. You know, it was a. It was you know very crazy event, but yeah, for the for the people who could kind of cut through the noise and get stuck into it, it's been um it's been an epic ride. And I, I personally think, depending on obviously where you're investing, I actually think that right now we're moving into another really interesting phase. And not to uh, I actually haven't specifically looked at the very specific data around this, but anecdotally, you can see that um, it seems as though after major share market crashes, there tends to be a boost in the property market as well. Look, so if you go back to like 87, you know, there was a massive share market crash then. And then in 88, 89, there was like 35% property market growth and all these kind of things. And so I think that there's still, I think there's still some really interesting stuff to play out through all of this stuff that's happened, everything from COVID to inflation to Ukraine, now rising interest rates, all this kind of stuff. I actually think that there's still a really lot of good opportunity out there, as long as you're buying in the right places, of course. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think when there's 
sort of volatility. It's a bit like, you know, the stock market goes down, we look to those precious metals, they tend to do better in times of crisis. There's a tangibility to it yeah. that, that correlates with property, right? You can, you can walk up to it and you can touch it and it's a less sort of liquid thing, right? Well, it doesn't go to zero. This is the point, right? Mm. So like a, a business can go to zero, right? Absolutely. So it doesn't matter how big the business is, the business can go to zero like like overnight pretty much, right? You know, mm. you know look at someone like Enron, right? The bank, gone, yeah. right? And so, but real estate won't go to zero, which is why just like precious metals, it tends to be a, a really good safe haven. It just um, like in the last... The last time we had a major economic incident that that universally affected national median and median sales price growth was the GFC. So we actually have had property market declines since then, and actually more significant ones. But the last time there was a, a major economic event that that caused caused that kind of action in there. Do you know sixty three percent of suburbs around the country still went up in value? Yeah, well, that's incredible, isn't it? It's crazy, isn't it? Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, but it is really interesting because that idea of having that tangible asset that doesn't go to zero is is one of the things that I think underpins particularly real estate in Australia. So mm. let's talk about that. Let's start talking about property, tax, yeah. depreciation. Yeah. D- did we really did we really make it fun on episode 7? I think so. <laughs> I think so. I think-, I think if we made back to it, I think we went if think if we went back to it we'd find it fun. Yeah, good. Okay. Well, I think like your you know, off air, your brief was, you know, let's talk about what tax depreciation is and let's try and make that interesting. And honestly, that's been a challenge for my whole uh, professional career, right? Because why should you why should you care? And, and and when when I get up on stage and people haven't seen me present before, they're like, oh, "How look. often do you get up on stage? Where are people well, going? Where are people, you get? Are you doing tours and stuff, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm very big at the Super Bowl halftime show. Um, stage is I've, I've probably hammed it up a little bit much. When I stand on the carpet in front of like say eleven people and and four of them are my family that I've begged to come. People, people are guilty of kind of thinking like, look at this middle-aged white dude with a cheap haircut. Like, this is going to be awful. Like, he's going to drone on. He's going to talk about, well, it was really interesting when the Income Tax Assessment Act came out in 1997. But so I have to really kind of try and shock people. But so, so tax depreciation is important because it's going to put money back in your pocket. And the worst thing that you can do as a property investor is purchase a property and then be forced to sell it because you don't understand the cash flow or you're having to chip into your pocket and you just didn't really kind of understand it. That that could set you back for 10 years, right? And that might actually burn you from getting your second property because, you know, the stats have been updated. It's now 68% of people only buy one investment property. It was 72. So we're getting a little bit more successful, but that's still, in my view, quite unsuccessful because I think people that are investing in property want to fundamentally change their financial future. And there's a fairly strong argument to say that one property isn't going to do it. And tax, I think, fits into that. Yeah, I 100% agree. So um, and there's not any, there's no exact stats on this either. But anecdotally, I'd say it's about five properties is kind of where most people need to get to in order yeah. to be able to, to, in order to be able to create that that vision that they really want it, right? That that mm. degree. Don't get me wrong. Buy one or two investment properties, and you're gonna end up wealthier, mm. assuming you bought the right property, right place, right time. You're gonna yeah. end up, you're gonna end up better off, but you just not might, might not get to that goal that you wanted. And this is, I think, where a lot of people get go really wrong is they. 
they don't assess the risk properly. And one of the biggest mm. risks is continuity risk, right? The risk that you won't be able to continue to grow your portfolio. And that, of course, also to your point comes if you make mistakes and you get set back and you get burnt and then actually you just might never buy again or maybe you buy one and it doesn't doesn't do what you want and you get, and you get stuck and you can't move forward. And so the way that I think about um, depreciation is kind of like, you know, it's. I always see it as a bonus, right? So I always think yeah. about buying buying assets that are going to work, regardless of whether there's depreciation or not. But I can speak for for a lot of our clients. I think the average, even though we're buying, because a lot of people think depreciation is only on new properties too, right? Mm-hmm. So, and all of our clients are buying established properties in established neighborhoods, and I think on average they get about three grand back in depreciation. So whack three grand on top of your annual, uh, on top of your cash flow for the year and all of that kind of stuff, and you're you're in a pretty good place. I'm just going to keep you moving forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the average across all of the properties that we look at, we chart every day, and it changes every day depending on the types of properties that we do. And it is normally in that sort of eight to ten thousand dollar yeah um, mark. And of course, those stats get blown out because we're seeing you know up up to forty nine percent of people buying brand new properties in our data. That's yeah. come back into sort of the mid thirty. So with established, it's going to be. A little bit lower, but you know, even at three thousand dollars worth of tax deductions, that could be a thousand dollars back in your pocket. And we're talking mm. for that that for year one, mm. right? So that's just the first year of deductions. And the longer you hold it, the more you get the benefit of that. So that's a pretty significant amount. Yeah, hundred percent. So let's let's start. Let's, just in case people don't know what we're talking about, what is depreciation and how does it work in yeah. ninety seconds or less? <laughs> what do we got? I've even got like this little. Are we are we on are we on video or that? Yeah, it's a podcast, so this could be clunky. Um, I've even yeah, it's got a video. Little, You'll be on YouTube. Yeah, people tuning in. I've got this it. little this little timer here, so we could <laughs> <laughs> press the button on that. Uh, so tax depreciation is an allowance for the wear and tear of owning an investment property. So an investment property is kind of like a business. The tenant pays you rent and you've got outgoings and and the wear and tear on the property is considered like an outgoing, right? So as tenants use the property, they're, they're decreasing the value of it because they're wearing things out. They're using it. And as an investor, you're providing a, a service too. You're putting a roof over a tenant's head. So what it enables us to do is we estimate the construction cost. We calculate those declines in value on all of the different components. At the end of the day, that gives you a report showing what is the value of the decline of those assets each year. And that is a tax deduction. How do we go there? Oh, I gotta do my little <laughs> I don't know how you I don't know how you went by time, but I thought it was a really I thought it was a really good explanation. And the way that I like to think about it is is because it's a little bit it seems a little bit esoteric to people. Hang on a second. I bought a house and tenants are paying me. The value is going up, and I get to claim for the fact that some that the tenants are using that. That's what they're paying for, right? Mm. The, it is a very interesting concept, right? Because if I'm if I have a business and the business is writing, let's just say it's writing letters for people, and I buy a pencil, right? Mm. I have to have the capital outlay for the pencil, right? But then as the pencil wears down, right? That asset that I've bought is is actually being is actually depreciating, right? It's yeah. actually becoming less declining in value. Declining in value, right? And so what the government basically does is to incentivize you to be able to continue to provide the services to people. It allows you to claim back that the loss of value in the assets that you own, right? Yeah. And if you think about it this way, the government housing stock is around about three percent of the private rental stock. So the government's really kind of out of the public housing business in in real terms. And there's a huge waiting list 
for it as well. And there's a, there's a tremendous amount of people that will always rent for whatever reason. I think it's around about 20% of households are, are rentals. And we can see what happens when investors are de-incentivized to be in the marketplace. And I believe they have been over the last little while. And look at rents at the moment. Like mm. rents have been stagnant for the best part of 10 years. And we've seen huge rental price growth. We've seen you know 16-year lows in terms of vacancy rates. It's actually a very terrible place for renters at the moment. And yeah. most investors that I speak to, you know, of course, it's great that your rents are going up, but they actually are worried about it. They do care about the plight of renters. Mm. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. Like it's no. like it's like um the market dynamics are are what they are. Rents are going up because there is a huge amount of demand for rentals. So, you know, you don't that that is just that's just the market conditions. But I don't know anyone who would say, "Oh, yeah, it's great that there aren't enough places for people to live." You know, yeah, <laughs> you know? No. like it's full on. Like it's it's, it's terrible. It's pretty. Cr- and even you know, obviously, I'm in um in Bondi at the moment, and, and during during the kind of like recent, there was a the recent boom in in Sydney just before now the recent like price decline in Sydney and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah. when it was hot there last year in in, in 2021. A lot of investors who had held properties through a pretty rough period, 2017 to 2019, where values went down, prices came back up and they thought, great, we're going to sell our, our investment properties. They sold their investment properties. They were bought by homeowners, which decreased mm. the rent, the, decreased the amount of rental stock in the market. And then all of a sudden, there's not enough rental properties for people to live in. It's it's crazy. Yep. That, was, that was a big part of it. And I think the last... Um not the last election, but the previous two really did kind of demonize um, property investors with the yeah. gearing sort of rhetoric. We had the the Royal Commission. And now we've got a lot of state-based legislation that kind of um, makes it quite arduous to own an investment property when it comes to, you know, the maintenance requirements. And and some of those are positive, a- absolutely. Like people deserve to have a, a you know, a, a nice, uh, well-maintained property that's safe and all that sort of stuff. But certain things like, you know, having to give cause for, for terminating agreements and those sorts of things, th- there's been a lot of changes that I think have disincentivized investors. Yeah, 100%. So depreciation, is it something that only um, property investors can claim or can homeowners claim depreciation on their on their house as well? It, it needs to be an income-producing uh, property or at least partially. So my, my first property, I bought as a first homeowner and mm. after a period of time rented out a bedroom. So I did depreciation schedule on 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 that bedroom, as it were. Um, so yeah, it, it's not for um, purely own your owner occupiers. It has to be income producing yeah. properties, either residential, but of course, it can be commercial and industrial or agricultural as well. Yeah, awesome. And you've done a fair bit of um, study research, been collecting a lot of data on the property market, property investors, depreciation, insurance, like loads. I know you've been doing loads of stuff in that kind of space. I'd be interested to know have you. Have you worked out like how many people don't claim depreciation? Because like, I think a yeah. lot of people don't even think about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Look, the the data on that is difficult. I mean, what we can what we can see from the ATO tax stats, which are yeah. always like three years behind, right? Yeah. We can see um, who's claiming plant and equipment and who's claiming cl- capital allowances. And certain companies have tried to say, oh, well, X amount of people aren't claiming deductions, so they're missing out. But they Forget that people that might have owned the property for for ten or twenty years, and there's is no residual depreciation left, and they've claimed it in the past. So we can't actually do that one hundred percent accurately. Mm. But there are other things that we can look at. For example, we looked at one thousand residential property transactions and the time from when they settled on the property 
to when they contacted us, right? And we found that 6.7% of people waited more than two financial years, which is the, the amount of time that you can back claim on missed deductions. So those 6.7% of people missed out on average $20,537. Now, at the time when we looked at that, which I think was two years ago, we if you extrapolated that across the property investor population in Australia, mm. it's $2.88 billion worth of missed deductions floating wow. out in the ether that the government is probably going to blow on submarines that aren't fit to spec or something like that, you know? <laughs> but that's 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 pretty unreal. Why do you think that is? Why do you think why do you think people are missing it? Is it just a lack of lack of information, lack of understanding? You know, is it is it a lack of knowing who to go to, right? Because maybe do, is it like do, maybe it's do people think it's something that their accountant does? What what's your speculation? Yeah. Why are so many people missing out on this? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a good question. If you think about those stats as well, that 6.7% doesn't sound like a lot, but we can only measure the people that eventually figured it out and came to mm. us, right? So in, in real terms, it could be a lot higher than that. I think education is a is a big thing, and um, you know I've been I've been trying to educate people for fifteen years, right? But you'd be surprised how few people subscribe to my YouTube channel. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, there's there's a lot of I, I think buyers agents are making a big difference in this space because they they're getting it, they're 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 understanding mm. that it's an important part of the property investment journey. It used to be up to accountants, and there's also a, a few issues even with accountants that. Don't don't potentially understand some of the legislation changes. So there was a big change to legislation in 2017. And a lot of people will say, oh, you know, depreciation is not worthwhile anymore. Certainly it's changed, but that I would encourage people to um, to slap anybody. Well, no, after the Will Smith thing, we're not slapping. <laughs> no, what? No slapping. No slapping. No slapping. Metaphorically slap anybody that, <laughs> that tells you that depreciation isn't a thing uh, anymore. And I think Probably the biggest one, and this led me to, to create sort of three triggers telling you when you need a depreciation schedule. And the third one, which is the least obvious, is properties that are built before the cutoff date for depreciation on the original building structure, which is 1987. Um, People don't consider that it might be built in the 50s and you kind of think, oh, there's not going to be any depreciation, but it might have been extended, had a new kitchen, a new bathroom. It could have been completely gutted. So mm. when you go to your accountant, if they're not on the ball, you might say, oh, I bought an investment property and they say, you know, when was it built? Say, oh, it was 1950 and they go, oh, there's not going to be any depreciation. Yeah, You've yeah. got to understand the history of the property. So I think that's part of the problem as well. Yeah, totally. Because pretty much anytime you upgrade the shuttles or do any capital works, right, you can pretty much start claiming on, on that kind of stuff. So if you put new carpet in, for yeah. example, new carpet, yeah. new air conditioners, kitchen yeah. fit out, new paint. Yeah. Yeah. Any of that kind of stuff you can start to claim, right? Yeah, pretty much anything that, that you do to a to a property. Um, repairs and maintenance are a different thing, but if we're talking about putting new assets in, they're all going to be depreciable. The, the, the only real exceptions are things like turf and plants you know anything that could feasibly blow away in a strong wind um yeah. you, you, you or, or is it organic material you can't but you know retaining walls and paving and concrete all those sorts of hard uh, components will will attract appreciation so do you need to work with people's accountants or do you is it two separate things because you mentioned a lot of people would normally go to their accountant and it was kind of like in their realm of accounts yeah, sorry another part another question are more people do getting depreciation schedules now than than used to be do you think their percentage is increasing increasing i, I I believe so. What what we have charted is the amount of time that people uh, wait to get a depreciation schedule done is has halved since two thousand and nineteen. Mm -hmm. 
So that speaks to a higher level of education. Um, so, so I think that's that's definitely the case. And to answer your question about the accountant, it, it kind of depends. I mean, sometimes we will chat to the accountant to say, look, this is an older property and the deductions we're looking at are around this kind of figure. We want you to have a chat to the, to the client about their specific tax situation because we don't ask their taxable income and those sorts of things. Is it worthwhile to get a report done? Because we don't want to charge unless there's any kind of benefit. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's some weird nuances um, in reports where we say, we've treated it this way, we've been given this list of improvements and, you know, about 8,000 of them um, or $8,000 worth, we would assume are repairs and maintenance expenses. So it's actually, it seems lazy, but we don't put them in our report because the accountant can claim them at 100%, so you get an immediate deduction. So. That's where there's often a back and forth between us. Now, uh, the Tax Practitioners Board requires that quantity surveyors be registered tax agents because in some ways, parts of what we do is is considered tax advice when we're putting depreciation rates on things. But the big difference between accountants is accountants know the whole tax ecosystem. We just work in, in a really narrow band of it. And what we do that accountants can't do is estimate construction values. So anytime there's ambiguity about what you've bought, uh, then you need a quantity surveyor to come in. Yeah. So how does that... Um, so that's really interesting as it relates to insurance, right? Because yeah. Because... When you're insuring your investment property, you want to insure it for the replacement value. But then, what is that, right? Yeah. So, so how does how does that how do you kind of play into that? Yeah. So pre pre pandemic, which is a completely different construction environment than we're in now, mm. the Insurance Council of Australia was saying that eighty three percent of of homeowners would be underinsured. Now that's a huge problem, right? And with construction costs having risen so dramatically in the last little while, that number is likely to be much, much higher. And Mother Nature doesn't tend to get less angry as years go on. She seems to be getting more and more annoyed. So it's a huge problem and something that we've really kind of taken on board as a, a passion project. So we weren't doing a lot of insurance replacement cost estimates, but now um, it, it's it's probably about 10% of, of, of our business. So What's important to understand is that you might think, oh, okay, you know, I've got a nice three-bedroom house and then I've seen an ad for this place. You know, you can buy this Clarendon home for $280,000. You're like, oh, that's way better than mine. So I'll just insure mine for that. (laughs) Or my purchase price is X and my land value is Y. So I'm going to do purchase price minus land value and that should kind of make it work. But what you've got to understand is when something happens to your house, um, it doesn't leave a nice laser-level debris-free block. Um, you're going to have to factor in uh, demolition costs. You're going to have to factor in cost escalations. You need preliminaries and consultants and designers and architects. And what what your property, so your property such as it was, might not actually comply to current legislation. It might not have enough um, compliance with, say, BASIC's legislation, or it could be built too close to the boundary. And of course, construction costs go up over time. So there's a lot of little bits and pieces that people don't understand. And I've got to say, the insurance calculators that you can get from the insurances, we've done some analysis on those, and they're, they're just wildly inaccurate. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that you pointed out there as well because it's an easy it's an easy mistake for people to make. Like for example, um, you know, when you get the rates notice, it sort of say the 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 unimproved land value and the and the the you know the, the value of the property on top. But then that's a, that's actually like 
as it is. So if you've got a 40-year-old property mm. that's had the windows kicked in and, you know, it's half burnt down and whatever, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. That's that that specific thing is probably not worth a hell of a lot. But if you had to replace it with a new building, probably yeah. going to be pretty, pretty expensive. Oh, true. And yeah. so ensuring what it is, not what it should be, is a real big gap and a real big thing for people to think about. Because I know, I'll actually confess recently, we bought a property, Gabby and I bought a property, and um, we got a we got a quote for the insurance. And the, I can't remember, the replacement value was way more than we paid for the property. And we were looking at it, we're going, this this little joint, we could, no way, there's no way that that's worth that much money. But then I guess in the context of it, if we knocked it down and built something new, mm then maybe, yeah, maybe that would be correct. Mm, and building it today as well too. Yeah. And, you know, like getting back to my original point about the pandemic and us really not knowing what was going to happen, we had a lot of builders try and secure work at very, very low margins, right, because they were uncertain for their future. Then they're locked into these fixed price contracts and materials have just went through the roof and labor became a problem as well. That's where we've seen, you know, a mm. lot of big builders go into liquidation or, or in, into big trouble. Um, you know, for the ones that are working on cost plus, you know, that that's that's kind of easier, right? But most people don't sign cost plus contracts. So construction costs have just been going up and up. And and certainly we're we're seeing a lot of the, you know, the timber mills and things come back online, but we've got global supply shocks. I mean, if you do a uh, a Google Earth image, you can just see a sea of ships off the coast of China. Like the whole world has kind of changed because of the pandemic and because of that that cheeky little fella, Putin, who's up to no good there as well. Yeah, totally. But you know, like there is a lot of what are you what are your thoughts on inflation? Do you think it's going to stick around? Because obviously the reason we've got so much inflation is largely because of you know supply supply chain disruption. The spot yeah. price on uh shipper containers is down 25%. The spot price on um microprocessors is down about 30%. Yeah. Spot spot price on fertilizers is down about 27%. So yeah. do you think maybe we're we're passing peak core inflation or do you think it's sticking around for a while? That's a really good question, and there's there's plenty of far more educated uh, people than oh, me. Oh, just that wildly speculate. Wait. That's all the economists do anyway. They just, <laughs> yeah. they just they just they're having a punt anyway. So you can do it too. It's all good. Yeah. Look, I I, I think um I think a lot of these these inflation measures are are global sort of temporary supply shocks, but we've also got a domestic component of that as well. I mean, there's been a, a huge amount of demand. And back when we weren't sure what was going to happen, the household savings ratio went through the roof. So we've actually yeah. been spending a lot of money in Australia domestically doing, you know, renovations and recently in domestic tourism and those sorts of things. And we've got a huge labour shortage, really. Like, is, you know, is, I'm pretty sure that this is the lowest uh, unemployment we've ever seen. And a, a lot yeah. of business owner friends of mine are trying to get people and it's Im impossible and, it, and it's forcing people to kind of have to ri raise prices uh, and, and just the demand is still there, right? So the prices are going up. People are still paying. And I mean, look at petrol. Like, what are you going to do? Not not drive? Like, maybe some people will walk or ride or catch the bus. But if you've got to drive to and from work, you've just kind of got to wear it. So I think... Um, I think we've got a little bit longer to go. I think mm. we're going to see a few more interest rate rises, but I don't think it's going to last forever. I think, you know, probably another six or 12 months, we could potentially be looking at interest rate cuts. Yeah. You've been around the block a couple of times. So what, what is, what's, you've, you've seen the property market go through rate rises before, I'm sure yeah. you have. 
what's your what's your take on it? Is it good, bad, or is it just a thing that happens? Or like, what's your what's your view of the landscape? Do you think it's going to have a negative or a positive impact on property? That's a good question. And and what springs to mind there is that computer models are are great, but only when people behave rationally. And I think people behave quite irrationally when um, interest rates start going up. You can see consumer sentiment tends to disappear. And for the people that you know weren't buying into the doom and gloom around the pandemic and invested in property, we can see how well they've done, right? Mm. So if you can counteract that kind of herd um, mentality, what did Mark Twain say? He said, uh, to create man was novel and to create the sheep was a tautology, right? Um, yeah. th- there's a real thing in that. So I, I think that um, the pace of growth will continue to slow. I think we may end up in in negative territory for for a small amount of time. I certainly don't think it's going to to fall off a cliff. Um, this this year is obviously still going to probably end in in positive territory. But I just think there's some great opportunities in this next little while for investors. Certainly, yeah, interesting. Another great quote by Mark Twain that I love that if you when you find yourself standing on the side of the majority it's time to pause and reflect yeah we're very apt in times like this yeah for sure I 100% agree with you and I think it's really interesting you know when you reflect back to those when you reflect back to those moments those big moments of uncertainty because that's all that's typically what it is right it's it's a moment of uncertainty where people act emotionally like which is fine emotions are real like to, mm. to your point so well and good to to be like yeah rationally x but like humans are emotional creatures like yeah. let's just let's just own that right and collectively we're really emotional creatures right so you know but if you look back to any of those kind of major um uh, emotional moments in our history tr- transverse just a couple of years into the future and then that that's usually become a really interesting moment for the people who were able to to kind of think of it think a little bit differently and see the opportunities in those kind of situations mm. yeah what a no, in some of the research you um you looked into, you looked into where the di- the distance between where people live and where they invest. Yes, tell me about that. Yeah, I mean that um that was a, an an original bit of data that we looked at in two thousand and nineteen because I was quite interested in it. Right, the, there's the old adage that you know people buy around the corner from where they live, and part of the motivation for me starting a podcast four or so years ago is was that stat that you know 72% of people only buy one property mm. i wanted to try and move the needle on that and i think it's it's advice right and a lot of people buy around the corner cuz they want to be able to touch it or look at it or they're like oh i know the area and then you ask them or oh, do you know the, the main em- employers and you know the historical you know growth rates and employment projections and they're like no i just know where the best coffee is and where the most gravity sort of is and you go oh okay well maybe you need to think about that so in 2019, we, we, we found that uh, 29.5% of people invest more than 200Ks from where they live. So let's call that 30. And more than 200Ks, that's probably reasonable that they might be buying it sight unseen. And, mm. and the main headline figure was that the average distance people buy from where they live is 293.47 kilometres away. Now, we looked at that data um, in 2021, and the average distance actually went to 559 kilometres, which with 44.7% of people buying more than 200Ks from where they live. So certainly, the appetite to buy further across Australia has changed. And this data really probably 
um, was finalized when we were still kind of at the back end of the mm. lockdowns. And I really wanted to see what influence the pandemic has, has had. And I expect that trend to change because there's just so much data available now. And I mean, take yourself, for example, the, the, the quality of data that you guys put out that talks about the property market around Australia, not just looking at you know, say Bondi, where you are, you 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 literally can buy anywhere in Australia if you've got a buyer's agent. And I think people are starting to realise that this you've got to treat this like a business. Yeah, hundred percent. And what's really interesting about that is that the the thing that has enabled that is technology, right? Because yeah. I, I actually was talking to someone the other day, actually on the on the podcast, and they were saying back you know, twenty years ago or whatever when they had very first started invest, the idea of like owning a property. Interstate, you, you know, you didn't have emails, or you know, maybe you did twenty years ago, but like once you, you didn't have emails, you had to talk over the phone. Like, how are you going to get? Like, there wasn't yeah. as much. There wasn't. You, you couldn't get as much information easily transferred. People were still using faxes and stuff. Like, you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? You know what I mean? So, yeah. like, not that long ago, the 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 technology context which enables people to do that was radically uh, was radically radically different. Yeah. Whereas now. It is, and I say this to people all the time. Like once upon a time, the the belief was that you couldn't buy a property unless you went there. Because what if you walked out into the backyard and just over the back fence was one of those massive um, power pylons? You know, what if yeah. what if? So you had the only way you could know that was to go there. And it's like, well, now we've got you know, now we've got satellite imagery, so you know, you yeah. can kind of <laughs> you can kind of work that out, right? Which is so. I think um, I actually think that that's a really good trend and something that's going to continue. And I actually think that that's kind of uh, really pointing towards uh, a different future for property investing because I think people are starting to slowly detach. From the emotional, because recently Gabby and I were in Geelong visiting Gabby's parents. We've got a property in Geelong and we we're driving through Geelong and I was like, oh, should we go and have a look at the house? And we we're like, uh, what for? And then we we're like, what are we going to yeah, do? Yeah. Just look, we just look at it. It's a house. And we just kept driving. We didn't even, <laughs> we didn't even bother. We were just like, no. Nah. And I think that <laughs> as people get less emotional about their investments, that actually changes the context about how the, how they can invest and actually helps them to, to become more sophisticated. And I think that that's actually probably playing a role in the fact that um, the number of people who own one property is actually down to 68%, and that's hopefully allowing people to become more successful. Yeah, I agree. And, and good on you for that. I think the fact that you turned away stopped you from being, say, a chubby personal trainer, which nobody trusts, right? Yeah. You, you, you know, you, you're, you're sort of li- living by, by what you're saying. And I had a similar thing recently where the, a, a, a property that we purchased um, not far from where we were on holidays recently, um, we purchased that site unseen. Later on, I did actually go and inspect it. And I said to the wife, we're sort of going past you want to have a look at it. She's like, not really. Like we're on holidays. Let's go and do holidays. I'm going to yeah. look at a house. Yeah. <laughs> look at a house that you can't even go in. It's okay. It's kind of fun going in houses and like yeah. having a look around. But what are you going to do? Just drive past and yeah. stare into windows? Like a- look at that. And then the tenant maybe looks at you and you're looking at the house and like, oh, this is just awkward. Oof. Weird, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. People, you think you can get arrested for that peeking through the curtains? And I think stuff, so. so. Well, yeah. <laughs> so. I think another uh, really interesting thing that is potentially going to change the the future of property investing as well is changes to the stamp stamp duty and land tax uh, mm-hmm. that they're trialing out in New South Wales. Um, I would love to get your take on what you think about the um, the recent changes or the proposed changes to to stamp stamp duty and land tax, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, my first thought is good on any government coming up with a policy that kind of could 
could be politically damaging for them. It's bold, right? And yeah. and, and politics in Australia has been so much more about that uh, that cycle and being re-elected. And that kind of mindset doesn't give us projects like Snowy Hydro, right? Like I'd love a politician to say, we're committing to this. When will it be finished? I don't know, 50 years. I'll be dead potentially. But this is what Australia needs. Let's go. Let's change something. Yeah, let's, let's, let's make a dent. Yeah, let's yeah. do something. So I, I think it's it's fantastic that they even began the discussion on it. And obviously the, the first home buyers is a real sort of test case uh, for whether they're going to do that for everybody. They've been very clear on that. And I think New South Wales will be a test case for the whole of Australia. Mm. And I can see it going to that. I mean, I, I sort of... Um, compare it to sort of like the subscription underpants or the shaver shop of stamp duty sort of analogy, right? Because it's ongoing revenue. Stamp duty revenue in New South Wales is around about a quarter of the revenue. And there's a lot of people saying, well, this will be hard for the government because it will decrease the the, the revenue. The, the, the crossover point is somewhere around about 20 years of ownership and people aren't necessarily doing that. But what I think it does is it, it removes part of the biggest hurdle for first home buyers, and that's coming up with the deposit. I think what it also does is it increases mobility, and that's a real problem in, in Australia because mm. we do have little old ladies in four-bedroom houses that want to leave, right? They, they want to downsize, but there's, you know, it's kind of like there's this, um, there's this loss aversion when you buy a house. I've, I've thrown all of this stamp duty, and it's not really fit for purpose, but, you know, We've only been there three years and that money goes in the toilet if we leave now. So I think it's really positive and I, I think it's a good thing for first home buyers. Uh, and I think, yeah, they, they deserve to be commended on having such a bold policy. What, what about yourself, Goose? I'm interested. I, to, yeah, I, I think, think it's awesome. I think it's awesome from a couple of, for a couple of reasons. So from a business model perspective for the government, I think it's actually really interesting because if you imagine somebody buys a house uh, in 1970, they pay stamp duty on it in 1970, they might have paid whatever, $2,000 in stamp duty. And then let's say they still own the house now. The, the government has only ever collected that stamp duty once and at a really low value, a low price then. Right? Yeah, with the time value of money, right? Exactly, the time value of money. So reducing the upfront charge and moving it to a land tax, which is obviously going to re-rate on an annual basis, right, as the, as the land value changes. Yes. I actually think that's really, really smart. Mm. Because um, long term, it's going to be a better revenue model for for the for the government. It's going to be more consistent, I think and so. and it's going to grow and it's going to have a massive compounding effect. I actually think, yeah, from a like from a from a from a business model perspective, I think it's really really smart. It's going to be damaging a little bit to the to the cash flow and all of the all of that kind of stuff. Short term, long term, great move. I think it's going to be better for everyone, and I think it's going to be better for everyone, not just the government, because it does reduce that kind of upfront barrier to entry, right? And that's a big thing, right? So um, I think, yeah, from a first home buyer perspective, I think it's awesome. From, you know, elderly mobility rate perspective, I think it's awesome. Property turnover rate, I think it's awesome because one of the biggest problems with real estate is the is the entry and exit costs, right? So yes. on average, it's, like, it's about 10% entry and exit costs, right? Basically, right? Yep. So um, if you can reduce that down by reducing the upfront uh, stamp duty, then that actually makes it easier to buy and sell and trade property. So you can actually turn over your properties faster, right? Which actually allows people, the uh, even if it's their home, not just investment, to move more frequently, feel less stuck, all of that kind of stuff. So I think it's got a huge amount of benefits. And then the futurist in me, mm-hmm. I believe that once we can break down a few more of these barriers, so stamp duty being one of them, and then... Um, 
once we can move to smart contracts, smart digital contracts and exchange instantaneously, we're actually going to be able to move, start moving to a more of a high frequency trading kind of model in the, in the real estate. I think that's the future of real estate personally. Yeah. So I'm really excited. I think this is a, a step towards, uh, towards a great destination. And look, not that the property market needs any more reasons to grow because oh, we yeah. currently have a housing shortage, right? Yeah, yeah. So it'd be great if housing would actually catch up with the demand for a little while. I think that'd be good from a social perspective, but also um, increasing access to property and decreasing the barriers to entry is obviously going to increase the participation rate in real estate as well, which is going to drive up values also. Yeah, and think about the economic um, benefits of that uh, that transaction volume, right? So if we're seeing more property transactions, there's a lot of people that get fed in the property space. I mean, mm. uh, around the you know the carbon tax style thing, the mining uh, companies were talking about, oh, how big are employers we are? But when it comes to property, they're they're like a pimple on a backside, right? Property is mm. is huge. So when a property transact, you've got you know your pest and building people, you might have land surveyors. You know, you've got, um, you might have sort of title insurance, you've got your solicitors and conveyances, your real estate agents, your property managers, um, you know, your, your buyer's agents, wh- whoever it might be. There's a lot of people that kind of uh, do get fed when a property changes hands. So that could be a, a huge economic uh, impact as well. Yeah, I, exactly. I think, I, think it's, I think it's smart for it. That's why I think it's going to benefit. It's, it's really beneficial to a lot of people. And I actually don't see a lot of downside with it aside from the fact that, you know, short in the sort of near term, it'll create some kind of cash deficits in the in the um, the state budgets and stuff like that. But generally speaking, I think it's a I think it's a great move. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Well, mate, before we wrap it up, I'd love to kind of dig in because we kind of started talking about depreciation, right? <laughs> we started, we, then we went off on it on a tangent. But I'm really interested in um, just kind of closing. Uh, closing the loop on the depreciation piece as well, because I think that is this is one of the as is, as we called the first episode we did unlocking the hidden unlocking the hidden riches in real estate. I really think that this little unknown and and hardly ever used piece in the real estate is really the key to maximizing your return on investment. Right? Mm. So, um, what do people need to know about it, or how do they how how would they know if they should be thinking about it, and then how would they you know, how would they know if it was right for them or any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, look, I think you touched on a really important point before that tax depreciation is a bonus. It shouldn't be a strategy, but wherever you have that bonus, you need to take advantage of it, right? So uh, I came up with three triggers telling you when you need to get a depreciation schedule. One is you buy a brand new property. That's probably the most obvious. We don't need to talk too much about that. Two is if it's built after the cutoff date for depreciation on the original building structure, which means it's automatically worthwhile. Now, you can remember the 16th of September 1987, or you can just remember, say, post-87, but a quantity surveyor will also give you free advice as well. So, mm. don't be afraid to ping an email with the address of the property and say, is there anything in it? Because if you do that to me and there isn't anything in it, I'll, I'll tell you and say, like, we, we can't in good faith recommend you proceed with this because you won't get your money back. The other one is if it's built, if it doesn't match point one or two, if it's built prior to 1987, you need to look at the renovations and the history of the property. And I've been in properties with owners before saying, oh, look, this is extended. And they're like, 
what do you mean? Really? I'm like, yeah, come and have a look under the house. There's a set of back steps going to the center of the property. That's a fair indication that something's different, right? Because they just left the steps when they did the extension because why not? They're just going to be hidden, right? Yeah. So a lot of people don't even know the history of the property. So those are the three triggers. And and what it really does, like when you think about owning a a property, probably the biggest deduction is going to be your interest component that you're paying with the bank. Um, You do have your property management, repairs and maintenance fees, but tax depreciation is is quite likely the second biggest deduction that you've got. And any amount of cash flow that helps you hold on to that property and helps from a serviceability point of view and helps you get to that second, third, and hopefully four plus, which puts you in the top 4% of property investors, that's where we want to be, right? So Mm. tax depreciation has a role in that. Yeah. I think it's an awesome, I think it's an awesome tool because, you know, to your point, the the thing that allows people to get to that level, to that four five properties to join the one per top one percent of property investors like is understanding all of the tools you have at your disposal like you learning how to play the game of finance learning how to maximize your returns learning what structures are going to be most appropriate to get to where you want all of that kind of stuff yeah and that's good you can't just bimble along and kind of hope you get there you need to actually understand what tools can i use when should i use them how should i use them and who should i speak to and how do i build the right team around me so you need a team i love the word bimble too don't bimble yeah. Don't bimble. No one should. You're not going to bimble your way to success. You no, won't do it. No way. So, so, Mike. Speaking of team, if somebody wants to you to be on their team, how would they get in touch with you or your team? Yeah. In order, in order to uh, explore this opportunity. Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn and and Facebook. It's Mike Mortlock, uh, and the company is MCG Quantity Surveyors. So if you think about the Melbourne Cricket Ground, and then you put QS on the back for Quantity Surveyors, then you go .com.au, and you'll hopefully find us. <laughs> easy, easy. Mike, thanks so much. It's been great to have you on again. We're going to make sure we don't wait another 152 episodes to get you back on here. I think so. Yeah. We need another swim in Bondi at Arctic temperatures as well. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. Okay, mate. Great to um, great to see you. Great to speak to you. We covered a lot of ground today. I really enjoyed the conversation. So thanks again. Yeah, always a pleasure. Cheers, Goose. Thanks a lot. Speak soon.